The Bible reading will be taken from Mark 16, verse 1 to 8. Mark 16, verse 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from Romans 6, verse 8 to 14. Romans 6, 8 to 14. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Yola, Zia, thanks guys. Team Isaacs did a great job. Pum, thank you for those prayers earlier on. And the music team. I feel like my work here is done, actually. <laughs> At one point when David was in, uh, talking about more singing, someone in the back said, Yay! <laughs> I felt, Amen, let's just sing. Uh, before we go any further, show of hands, did the Easter Bunny visit your house? Please, show of hands. If you're anything like my house, it was a very late delivery. I finally figured out who actually benefits in this whole scheme. Okay, so how does it work? Easter Bunny delivers then from, say, 5.30 to 9.30. There's a massive chocolate binge. And then just as those guys are hitting the climax of their sugar high, we deliver them to some unsuspecting Sunday school workers. (laughs) And we retreat to the calm of the auditorium. All these years I've been benefiting. I only figured out today what's actually going on. So we really should spend the rest of our time praying for the Sunday school, but we do have more important business because Christ is risen. Nah, guys. David, been preparing you all morning. Christ is risen. Amen. Beautiful. 
But what does that mean? Why do we say it? What are we doing here? We're back to the questions we were asking on Friday. We're just here to earn our Easter eggs. Some people are going to run 10Ks this morning. We're going to suffer through a church service. Why is the resurrection, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, why is that the best news you will ever hear? And it is. I put it to you that it's better news than 100% herd immunity right now. If I had to choose between a vaccine with 100% efficacy over the SA variant or any other variant or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would choose the resurrection every time. Good for you, Pastor. That's wonderful. You have your religion. But let's get real. People are suffering and dying. I know. And that's exactly why I would choose the resurrection. Let me try and make some sense of what I'm saying. Easter Sunday is about the resurrection. It's about the empty tomb. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We had our two readings this morning. The first one, written by a man called Mark. He was secretary to a man we know as the Apostle Peter. What he did was he gave us a description of events. The second reading wasn't a description. It was an explanation. So Mark records the events, but the Apostle Paul writes a letter to his church in Rome, or church in Rome, explaining what those events mean. So what does Easter Sunday mean? What does the empty tomb actually mean? To answer, we're going to begin at the end. The last phrase of the last verse that Theola read for us. Romans 6 verse 14. It says, You are not under law, but under grace. Paul is explaining the resurrection in this passage, and his conclusion is that because of the resurrection, the people he's writing to are no longer under law. They are under grace. What does that mean? First, what does it mean to be under law? Well, it means to live by a certain standard. So for the people who got this letter, it would have meant to live by God's standard. But living by a standard is not unique to religious people. It's something all human beings almost instinctively do. Consciously, subconsciously, we live by a certain standard. Why do we do that? It's a way of proving to ourselves and to others that we are worth something. We're not worthless. We're better than that. We are better than those who can't meet the standard. The standard tells us we're worth something. We can measure that we mean something by the standard. We matter, we count. How do we know? Well, we've measured by the standard. That is actually what most people think Christianity is. Christians are people who live by the standard of the Bible. Right? It's an ethos. It's an ethic. Christians are moral people. People of principle. They have standards. They can be a little bit boring. A lot of them are self-righteous hypocrites. Whatever they are, they at least claim to be law-abiding. People of a standard. They conform to a standard. And by that standard, 
They are good people. Isn't that what most people think of Christians? I don't know if you noticed this, but this verse, Romans 6.14, straight from the Bible, says the exact opposite. It says that because of the resurrection, Christians are not under law. The essence of being a Christian is not living by a certain standard. Christians are not under the law. They are under grace. But what does that mean? To understand life under grace, we need to look at some of the results of grace. We see them in our passage. I'm just going to list them for you very quickly. Life under grace means a new master, a new purpose, a new status, and a new identity. A new master, a new purpose, a new status, a new identity. We start with a new master. To talk about having a new master, you have to talk about having an old master. Look at verse 14 again. It says, when you are under grace, sin, sin shall not be your master. Verse 9 uses the same kind of slave master language. It says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion, mastery, over him. It's slave master language. Death no longer has mastery over him, no longer has dominion over him. Death is no longer his master, the master of Christ. And verse 11, you must think of yourself in the same way. Death is no longer your master. The passage is saying that you were, and perhaps you still are, a slave to sin and death. You might be thinking, what on earth is this joker on about? I'm a free man. I'm a free woman. I don't answer to anyone. I'm nobody's slave. I'm certainly nobody's slave. Just listen to the text one more time. Verse 12. Do not let sin reign, be your master, in your mortal body, your body of death. To make you obey its passions. In other words, don't be a slave to sin and death. And then it explains what that means. To be a slave to sin and death means to obey your passions or your desires in the way that a slave would obey a master. So to be a slave to sin and, and then death is to serve your desires and to have no choice in the matter. It's forced labor. You do what your desires tell you to do. I think this makes a little bit more sense to us. It's something that human beings have understood for a long time. Both Socrates and Plato warned of the dangers of being enslaved by our desires. Plutarch said the common charge upon all sorts of passions is that they excite and urge the reason, forcing it by their violent stings. In other words, the passions are our master. The, ancient belie- the ancients believed that our passions, our desires, can enslave us. And modern experience shows us that they were right. Anybody, I'm going to ask you to expose yourself, especially if, if you are an aging grunge rocker. Okay? Anybody heard of Kurt Cobain? Tian Lieber, oh, good. There's Yaku, good. I know Tian Liebenberg, if he was here. I'm outing you, Tian, if you're at home. 
he would put his hand up high. Daniel, our drummer, I've seen him wearing a Nirvana t-shirt before. Kurt Cobain is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Nirvana sold more than 75 million albums. So he's considered one of the most influential musicians of the modern era. He's not what you would call a conformist. He once said he would rather be hated for who he, for who he is than loved for who he is not. Not a conformist. No one was telling him who to be or what to do. He believed passionately in his own freedom. He's nobody's slave. This is what he said about drugs. Drugs are a waste of time. They destroy your memory and your self-respect and everything that goes along with your self-esteem. They are no good at all. When he died, age 27, he was a heroin addict. His heroin addiction played a major role in his suicide. Cobain's desires led him to drugs. He hated drugs. And yet he couldn't escape them. He knew drugs were bad, that they were destroying him. He wanted something else for himself. But his desires wouldn't let him escape. He was enslaved to a cruel master, and in the end his master killed him. In other words, he was a slave to sin and then to death. I think we can understand this. We are not drug-binging rock and rollers, at least not to my knowledge. But we understand what it is to be chained by desires that we know are destructive, and yet we can't break free from them. Could be pornography, shopping, gossip, the affirmation of others. I must have the affirmation of others. And I'll do all sorts of destructive things if it means I get that affirmation. Food, mundane, everyday desires. But they're ruling over us. And here's the twist. Slavery to destructive desires is one thing. But Paul's point is that you can even be a slave to your morality. You can live a clean, disciplined, orderly life and still be a slave to sin. That's totally counterintuitive, isn't it? I'm going to say it again. You can, be a, you can live a clean, disciplined, orderly life and still be a slave to sin. The logic of verse 14 is that sin can still be ruling in your life even when you are under the law, obeying the standard. And it can be equally destructive, just as destructive as your desires. How does that work? What happens when you try and live to a standard? Well, it's one of two things, isn't it? Either you fail... Or you succeed. Right? So if you fail, if you don't live up to your standard, it crushes you. How many people do you know who have their father's expectations as their standard? And they've never been able to meet that standard. And it absolutely crushes them. So either you fail and your standard crushes you, or you succeed and it ruins you. 
When I meet my arbitrary standard, I start to feel good about myself. I have to conclude, I have to conclude, there is no other conclusion, I have to conclude that I am better than those who do not meet my standard. I have no choice. That's what my standard is telling me. It's an objective measure. I have to look down on those who do not meet my standard. And we all have experience with this, either in our own lives, if we're honest, or in others. And it's not pretty, is it? That self-righteousness, smugness, aloof, it's ugly. But often that's not even the worst part. Because often self-righteousness has a stepsister locked away in the basement. Living under the law can result in self-righteousness. It does. It often does. But it can also result in hypocrisy. And often it results in both. We see this so clearly, this hypocrisy, in the lives of celebrities. And we have to be careful here because the only difference between us and them is that their failings go viral. So take Tiger Woods. In the public eye, a picture of discipline, courage, excellence, generosity. But behind the bright lights, there's a darkness in the back corners of his life. You could say the same thing about Michael Jordan, Lance Armstrong. Similar stories, high-performance individuals, high standards, incredibly high standards in public, but violating that same standard in private. And we are no better than them. What about politicians? How many of our local politicians campaign on a ticket of integrity, right? Viciously attacking corruption in their opponents, only to have it blow up in their faces the moment they take office when that first scandal inevitably arrives. What about us? How many of our children can talk about how they see one thing in public but something completely different at home? One thing at church on a Sunday but something entirely different in the car on the way home? Life under the law is either devastation and failure or self-righteousness and hypocrisy. It is slavery. The old master can reign over a life that's a complete mess or a life that advertises perfect order. And the old master is a cruel tyrant. There is no freedom there. If we're honest, we know this. But Paul says... That because of the resurrection, you have a new master. He says, verse 11, you can count yourself dead to sin, dead to your old master, but alive to God. Your new master is not a standard. He is a person. A father who loves you, even though you don't meet his standard. You never will. But Jesus did. In your place. This Jesus who rose from the dead came to pay the price for your freedom and to bring you to a new master. Here's the irony. Your freedom is in the service of a new master. A kind master, a good master, a master worth serving. 
And more than that, Jesus came to give you new desires so that there's nothing you want more than to serve this new master. Hear this. Please hear it. If you accept what Jesus is offering in the resurrection, you are no longer a slave to desires that will trap and destroy you or to a standard that crushes you in failure and ruins you in success. Think about it like this. You work in the family business. You are a beloved member of that family. You are the apple of your father's eye. And you stand to inherit everything. All because Jesus rose from the dead. Living under grace means a new master. And a new master comes with a new purpose. This is the purpose in the family business. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. When you are living to serve your own desires, to keep your own standard, you intuitively know that a lot of what you're doing is just plain wrong. It hurts others, it is selfish, but in the end you don't care because you are living to serve your true master, either your desires or your standard. And what the boss man says goes. It's wrong. And there's a small part of you that always knows that it's wrong. But it's not just wrong. It's also utterly meaningless. Why am I straining and pushing and shoving others aside to feed the monster of my own selfish desires when that monster will never ever be satisfied? Why am I struggling and shouting and abstaining and disciplining myself and others to meet a standard that makes me look down on other people and makes me hate them? And in the end, it's arbitrary anyway, my standard, because I just made it up for myself or I took it from someone else why am I doing any of this if all of it ends in death Leo Tolstoy was a Russian aristocratic novelist maybe you know him from War and Peace he uh, wrote at the turn of the 19th century he's considered one of the greatest authors of the modern era he was nominated for, a, for the Nobel Prize in Literature four times and the Nobel Peace Prize three times, as one is. Whether you are measuring by the satisfaction of his private desires, and, and he lived for those desires, or by the meeting of his public standard, so whether you're measuring by his private desires and how he satisfied those, or the meeting of his public standard and how he met that, He was about as successful as anybody ever gets. Seven Nobel nominations. Listen to what he wrote. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide. You see, he's not that different to Kurt Cobain. It brought me to the verge of suicide. Was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live. 
as I had found by experience. It was this. What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It it can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? As Tolstoy says, this is the bold reality that faces every one of us living apart from God. But as the Apostle Paul says, the resurrection makes way for a new life with God, with God as your Father. And so now your purpose is to live for Him, to do His bidding. And when you know the kindness and the goodness of God, and when you see with new eyes the beauty and the wonder of this world that He's made, and how it is damaged and polluted and corrupted by people living meaningless, selfish lives for themselves, then your heart bursts with the joyful possibility of how much good there is to do, of how much love there is to show, of how many wrongs there are to be righted. I had an old um, professor who used to say that the purpose of a Christian is to find the things in this world that are bent and make them straight. You don't have to look very hard to find the things that are bent. And there is such joy in being used by God to make them straight, to make them what God intended them to be. There's double joy. The joy is not just in fixing the broken things. The joy is in delighting in the beauty and the goodness of what God made in the first place. Your desires can be satisfied in a healthy way when they no longer rule over you, when they point you to the one who does. A few weeks ago, Martin mentioned Eric Little. You remember that sermon? Uh, He was a Scottish missionary to China. He died in a concentration camp. He knew the broken side of this life. But he also knew how to enjoy God's good gifts because he could run. He was an Olympic athlete. Do you remember what he said? God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to enjoy God in how he's made things. And then to enjoy him again in how he is making things new in you and through you. That's your purpose. And it's joy upon joy. One Christian put it like this. He said, if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, degradation are endemic, we will work and plan with all the energy, and I would add joy, of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Some other Christians from a previous generation, they said the same thing just in fewer words. This is what they said. The chief end of man, the purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Under grace, you have a new master and a new purpose because 
you have a new status. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion, mastery over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that if you are a Christian, if you are living under grace, that first Easter morning, the boulder didn't just roll away for Jesus. It rolled away for you. Paul is saying that life apart from God is just sin that leads to death. Because living for God is the only life there is. And Jesus walked that road for you. On the cross, he died your death. When he rose, he rose to give you new life, resurrection life. When he died, it's as if you died to your old life apart from God, a life that was really death. When he rose, it's as if you were born again into the only life there is, his life, a life of living for God. So if you are a Christian, you have died and risen to new life. If you are not a Christian, that's what's on offer here today. The risen Lord Jesus is personally inviting you to new life. You don't have to be trapped in the tomb of your guilt or the grave of your selfish, meaningless life. You can be free. You can be alive, truly alive, for the very first time. You can have a brand new status. And that brand new status is, in effect, a brand new identity. Verse 11, for the last time. So, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. A new master, a new purpose, a new status. It all comes to us only in Christ Jesus. The difference between being dead and living for myself and being alive to God is not just a change in what I do. It's a change in who I am. It's a change in identity. And it only ever comes to us in Christ Jesus. It comes as we are united with him and we experience that unity as accepting the invitation that he is offering you this morning. Accepting the invitation to trust him and love him and follow him. We experience it as new desires, a new set of desires, desiring nothing more than to please our new master, our father, New desires, a new master, a new purpose in life. This is how we experience it. This is how we experience unity with Christ. It's a whole new status, a new way of being that is about God and others rather than me. It is a deep love for God that overflows into a deep love for others. But it only comes to us in Christ Jesus.
It is not something you can work up for yourself. And that is what we mean when we talk about living under grace. We mean that all these things, freedom from the old master, the new purpose, the new status, all of it has everything to do with Jesus and nothing to do with us. It is all, from start to finish, a gift from God. And Jesus is that gift. He comes to each one of us freely when we least deserve it. When we least deserve it. So the center of it all is not an ethic. It's not an ethos. It's not a standard. It's a person. If you see something different in a Christian, it's not because of what she does. It's because of who she is. The Christian ethic, if you can call it that, is be who you are in Christ Jesus. Be who you are in Christ Jesus. Not about identity. Sorry, not about standard. It's about identity. It's not about law. It's about grace. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And therein lies the freedom. Therein lies the good life. Before I close, let me just deal with the elephant in the room. All of this, everything I've said, depends on one thing, doesn't it? Jesus rising from the dead. Because it all sounds wonderful as legends go, it's a, it's a really nice one. But let's be real, what happened on that first Easter weekend? Something like this, he was a great man. A great man. He died a tragic death. His followers were deeply wounded. They suffered a great trauma, a great loss. But in fact, his memory lived on in their hearts and in all the stories they knew about him. And so strong was their devotion to him, so strong were their feelings for him, so common were the whispers and the rumors that he was still alive, that the experience of his ongoing presence started to take on the texture of reality. And the record of all of this took on a life of its own. So we have stories of an actual resurrection that were just meant to keep his memory and his ethos alive, but we've now begun to interpret them as if they are fact. That's the very polite, charitable version of how most people understand the Christian delusion, right? Let me point out the problems. You can't just dismiss the resurrection with that counter-story. Not so fast. There's some real problems. I'm going to give you just, just a few examples. First problem. We read, Zia read for us, the story of the resurrection in Mark's gospel. Who were the first witnesses of the resurrection? A group of women. Problem. In the ancient world, Women were not considered credible witnesses. So if you're making this up, if you're designing it to keep his memory alive, you are not going to put that detail in the story. It is going to undermine your case from the word go. Second problem. In another letter to the Corinthian church, we read Paul's letter to the Roman church. In his letter to the Corinthian church, he, me he mentions that there were 
Over 500 witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus on one occasion. And he mentions that many of them are still alive. What he's doing is he's challenging his readers to go and ask them, go and find them, speak to them. Is that something you would do if this was a fairy tale? You're really going to rely on the fraudulent witness of that many people. You're going to rely on that many fraudulent witnesses to keep their story together. Problem number three. If you wanted to honor the memory of Jesus in the first century, the last thing you would do is concoct a bodily resurrection. The culture of the day hated that idea. Greeks and Jews both would find it enormously hard to swallow. Greeks actually prefer spiritual Jesus. And the Jews, the timing's all wrong. Bodily resurrection comes at the end of history. It's for all the saints. So it doesn't fit the calendar at all. Plus, they had that those Jewish disciples had the examples of Moses and Elijah just vanishing. They didn't need a bodily resurrection. The clearest examples pointed in another direction. Much better to say he vanished. They didn't need a bodily resurrection. They didn't want a bodily resurrection. Why did they put it in the story? Only one possible reason. Fourth problem. What about Paul himself? The guy who wrote the letter we've been reading this morning. He hated Christians. He was persecuting them. Organized, stirring up mob justice to see them beaten and imprisoned. Hated them. But at at some point he flipped. And he became the most powerful ambassador for the Christian message the world has ever seen. How do you explain that? I can tell you how some want to explain it. They want to say it was a psychotic break. Think about a psychotic break. It happens under enormous duress, under enormous stress. Paul wasn't under pressure. He was on top. His side was winning. It was all going swimmingly. And when you read his letters, they don't read like they are written by a lunatic zealot. Read them. They are very rational. They're also very loving. So how do you explain the change? I can tell you how Paul explained it. He explained it as an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. I could really go on all day, but there's chocolate. That chocolate's not going to eat itself, right? (laughs) Point is, If you want to deny the resurrection, you can't just dismiss it. You actually have to engage with the evidence. And if you do that, you are going to find it very hard to deny. What's the alternative? The alternative is that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And if that's true... To quote a famous pastor that we are already missing, it changes everything. If Christ is risen, it changes everything. It is the best news that anyone will ever hear. And it's for you this morning. David's going to say more about that.